Welcome to Runners on Trail, the trail running podcast by mid-pack runners. For mid-pack runners. I'm Anthony. And I'm Thane. And this episode is all about the Montaigne Spine Race. Which Thane rang in January. We went into the studio a week after Thane had done the race. And we had so much material that we've split it over two episodes. So you get all the stuff with us talking in the studio, plus some stuff that Thane recorded with two of the guys he ran with. Yes, we've got a couple of trail clips and we've got interview inserts from Colm and Patrick. So this first episode is from the beginning to checkpoint three. This is Runners on Trail, episode 14. Welcome back to Runners on Trail, episode 14. And this one's all about you. It's all about me. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, doing the spine race. The spine race. Something uh, certainly up to six months ago I said I would never do. But after Spine Fusion, I was so enthused by that race that I uh, decided that I really would like to try and achieve a finish at the event. And after... Uh, a certain amount of preparation and planning certainly around clothing and keeping warm I thought I had a strategy that worked so I went for it and of course Jasmine Parrish won it this year and that's generated a huge amount of publicity since and uh, before we said anything else you know massive congratulations to her an outstanding achievement knocking 12 hours off the record because obviously we knew whilst we were racing that she was out in front we were picking up reports from the staff and stuff and it was amazing and everyone was really chuffed that she did so well that was absolutely astounding effort yeah and I've heard some people say but it was a fast year this year etc etc and you know what I'm not going to make too much of a comment on that but what I would say is that Ian Keith was three hours slower than his course record Mm. so how fast a year can it really have been? Um, yeah. If the bloke who ran the course record couldn't run faster than his old course record uh, and she beat it by 12 hours, I'm pretty sure it's a good time that I think will last a little bit, I think. I genuinely do. I think so too. And uh, we'll cover weather and uh, how <laughs> the race was yeah. through the course of the uh, podcast. So we've talked about Spine before, we talked about Spine Fusion, so Spine Fusion is exactly the, the same race but it's done in summer, it's done by the same organisers, same checkpoints and everything else, so what we're not intending to do is labour on the course and, and specifics and details, if people want to get some more detail about the route then, then maybe listening back to that podcast might be something to do. Yeah, but basically it's the 268 miles of the Pennine Way in seven days in January. And it starts in Edale, you run through the Peak District, the Yorkshire Dales, the Northern Pennines, go along Hadrian's Wall, through Kielder Forest, then up to the Cheviots, finishing in Kirkyathorm in the Scottish Borders. So in this episode, we'll walk through the different legs. Which is um, what you did a lot of. Yes, an awful lot of walking through the legs. Uh, we'll cover off the kind of the bits that were the main focuses during those legs and then wash it all up at the end, etc. Yeah. And also bring in a couple of conversations I had with people who I was with at certain times and get their opinions of it as well. I think I know the answer to this question before we start, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Which is more difficult, fusion or spine? Spine. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> more difficult. There you go. I thought that would be the answer, but um, how much more difficult? I guess we can get into as we go along. Yes, but, yeah. And maybe you could maybe throw a couple of comparisons into how things were when you did fusion and when you did spine. And Absolutely. What... Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's about 125 competitors, something like that. Do you know what? I didn't count them. I I had approached this race... Um, to finish race let's be very clear from the outset I was not approaching this race to be competitive I did not think I was going to do a fantastic finish but I was 
for me, and I think it's true for like three quarters of the people taking part, it's about completing it. Well, look, that you, is the challenge. Yeah, I mean, it had taken you six days to do fusion. I think we all presumed fusion would be easier than the actual spine race, just mm-hmm. because weather and all the other bits and heavier pack and all the other bits that went with that. Yeah, and you'd done that in six days, so you only have seven days to do spine. So one presumes you know that's going to be the case, and you know. On that basis, um, I told you that I'd run Fusion naked if you did it in under five days. Yes. And I knew, I was pretty sure from the start it was a safe bet to I have made. it was a safe bet. It did, did, it did encourage me somewhat for the first uh, half day, but then I realised <laughs> it was untenable. But, but I did, I, I, and in my head I was going for like a six and a half days finish. That's kind of where I hoped I would kind of be. It is, as you say, it's a heavier pack. You were, my pack was more like um, fully loaded. I think it was up at nine kilos and, and you just not kit out necessarily to do a run per se. But that's not but too bad, nine not, kilos. Not too bad. Yeah, foot fully laden, six and a half without, um, uh, without my standard water and food. So we stay at youth hostel, um, EDL youth hostel, the night form, a lot of people do. So about 70 of us there uh, and people were mingling in the evening and stuff like that. But in the morning, what's interesting is you go down to breakfast and you've got to have taken your drop bag down and they take that away. So then everyone's at breakfast in their race gear and it becomes very apparent the strategies that people are using whilst you're sat there at breakfast. Yeah. Because of the 70 people there, there was like 10 of us who were wearing kind of more mountain gear. I was wearing my buffalo gear, as I said before, which is this kind of, you know, pile-lined thermal kind of clothing. But it looks like you're, you're going in for a day walking in the mountains. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's almost like salopettes. It's almost like yeah. you're going skiing or something like that. Yeah. It's thick clothing. Kind of, yeah, it's, it's got that, of that nature. So there's like 10 of us wearing stuff like we were going to do some serious mount, uh, uh, expedition-y type stuff. And then the other everyone else was wearing kind of spandex and running gear. Uh, and I felt very self-conscious eating breakfast and going getting stuff because you have everyone kind of looking at you going oh you've bought mountaineering gear to a running race how strange but then what was quite weird was when when you've had breakfast you then walk down to the coach because coach can't come up to the youth hostel because the road's too bendy so it's about a kilometer walk down the road and it was wet and it was windy outside and a bit grotty and dark and then you get when the time I walked down that hill and got onto the bus, and I was feeling absolutely fine in my gear. And everyone's a bit more concerned. But of course, all the, most of those people, you know, if, if there are only ten of you in the mountaineering gear, the other sixty took part in the race. About thirty-five of those will have finished. So yeah. you know, and they'll have done just fine in their yes, in their running absolutely. gear. And when I listened to some of the stuff from last year's spine, um, the guys who I was listening to who. To be fair, I guess we're more front of pack runners when I've heard interviews. Mm. We're wearing the sort of Montaigne do some fleece lined running tights. So they look like running tights, but they're actually thermally lined. Yeah. And then those with a pair of, uh, onto a pair of sort of soft running waterproof trousers. So it's sort of a soft material rather than mm. Gore-Tex over the top. I suspect as long as you're moving at pace, probably, well, I gather from these people, provides us a fair amount of warmth. So it's just which way you're taking it. Mm. Um, but I, it is that bit, isn't it? You're always at the start of a race because you tend to want to start cold because you know you're going to get a bit warmer mm. and it's miserable and grotty and rainy and mm. those people who are warm and dry will feel great, although they might end up sweating before the, after they start the race. And we, we can talk about the, yeah, yeah. the efficacy of buffalo gear a little bit in yeah, this yeah. episode because yeah. uh, we've both used it previously and know how good it is. Well, you could definitely see from the people at the start line that people you know, like me who've taken the conscious decision of, no, I'm getting through this from start to finish and I feel you know, relatively bomb-proof that I've got the right stuff to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just, it's an approach thing, but it was quite interesting looking, to see. Looking at your shoes... Um, you, 
yeah. Yeah. You're bloody proof. lucky, but yeah. we'll talk about bomb proof in a minute. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, all a bit chaotic at the start, um, getting trackers put on and everything else. Went down to start. I purposefully took myself off at the start with five minutes to go to the corner of the field. Um, I've got a number one motivational video type thing which uh, gets me fired up uh, from your world within called This Is War. And yeah, that was my moment to kind of psych myself up for it. Very glad I did it. <clears throat> Played it to myself, walked back to the start line. And one minute later, we all went off. So yeah, started off. The, 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 we knew the weather on uh, top of Kinder Scout because the first leg is really, it's, it's reasonably high up. It's about 2,000 feet, but you kind of stay up high um, for most of that kind of period. It was going to be windy, but I think it was windier than we thought it was going to be. I mean, it was the the gusts were up at over forty knots. I think. Oh yeah, and 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 that would have just been the general gusts o- on certain bits of Kinder Scout and certain bits. It was it, you know you were struggling to stay on your feet because you're right on you know right on the edge kind yeah. of thing. Uh, and and that that first day was very much typified by kind of mist, low cloud, and high winds. It was reasonably tough going navigation wise. You could sometimes you could only see a few hundred feet. Uh, so and especially near the start there's quite a lot of different left and right turns and stuff you need to take which aren't particularly well marked but it was it felt like an intense day in the hills from a wind perspective and from a navigation perspective you're using mostly gps i used gps throughout i did not use the maps once okay which is a real change from the summer yeah 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 And, and in part because generally it was quite windy this year and on a lot of occasions, I would not have wanted to get the maps out because I wouldn't have been able to hold on to them. Another reason is I had good GPS tracks on you, you know, from I have my summer tracks. The, the organisers tracks are very good, very confident using my GPS device. I've done the race only six months previous. A lot of it was actually quite well ingrained in my head. OK, you know, I'll get to a junction. I know it's down there. It's over there. I remember um, I might not have been able to, you know, forecast it in my head. But when I got there, it's like, oh, no, it's down here. OK. Um, so in actual fact, I never looked at the maps at all. I had all three with me all the time and they just stayed in my bag. So anyway, yeah, that day was, it was, there's a lot of people moving around in the field, but essentially got to Hebden Bridge uh, in reasonably good order. Which is about 50 miles. Yeah, yeah uh, 45, I think. Okay. Did around 15 hours. Yeah, and I wasn't really with anybody. I'd spoken to a number of people who kind of bounced past me a few times and that, but I was pretty well, you know, obviously everyone's kind of close-ish. Yeah. Start. And look, you, you got there, and as per usual, when we've done big events, there was a group on WhatsApp. You know, you had effectively had a virtual support team. Yeah. We weren't in the field with you, but we were providing you with information on weather and where you were in terms of timings and what we thought about your pace and all that sort of stuff. That's kind of mm-hmm. stuff you kind of hope a crew would do if they were sat talking to you at an aid station. And I think from that point onwards, most of us were fairly confident that you'd got it as long as you kept that pace and, and it, we'd, we, you and I discussed how you were going to manage yeah. the race so I knew probably that your pace you'd be able to keep roughly the same throughout the whole race and I don't think I ever felt too worried that you weren't going to make it mm. it was only if, if you suddenly got injured you know I, in terms of pacing I think you've got it right there or thereabouts for most of the race yeah I think I was only like that is an hour and a half or so behind my summer time and, and I'd run bits in the, in the summer in the first section so actually, I thought, no, this is this is okay. This is this is comfortable. Yeah, I was using my poles well. I had kind of Nordic-y poles. Not not that you can do a lot of it, but nonetheless, I was able to get keep up a reasonable pace uh, amongst other people, and I was managing myself within my limits. 
But what was quite apparent was the wind was taking its toll on a fair few people. And even then there were people who had got eye problems. Uh, it was when I was coming out of the aid station, I passed a lady coming in who I'd shared a taxi with from, from Sheffield to Edale. And uh, she had one eye completely bandaged over. Um, she had got wind blindness. From not wearing eye protection. Yeah, so she was wearing glasses, but she wasn't wearing her goggles. Some people were, but not, not everyone by any means. And yeah, wind blindness is where the, the wind kind of can take off the front of the cornea. Nice. Produces, but there were apparently eight people who were suffering from wind blindness just on that first leg. So it just goes to show. And I think believe two of them were, you know, had to stop because um, they had one or both eyes. There was a guy who broke his leg on the first section. And there was also a guy who was suffering from wind blindness, stumbled and fell and basically head planted into a rock and rearranged the front of his face, um, taken to hospital. So there were, there were but, a but, fair but, amount of But injuries. you look fine now. I'm fine. <laughs> no worse than I did. Um, yeah. So there was a, um, yeah, a fair amount of, of injuries in that, just on that first section. And, and so let's talk weather. As I said, the people have said it was a fast year. And clearly, you know, it was a fast year. Jasmine Paris knocking 12 hours off the course record. Yeah. But I think the point here is that Yes, there was no snow and people weren't wading through snow in the Cheviots and we all accept that. But the the wind and the rain this year were horrendous. So, yeah, it's really weird. I knew this before doing Spine and having done it, I'm even more emotionally tied to the weather because you ha- it's a lot of financial commitment just to, to take on the Spine, as it is any of the major races. And I think Spine's good value, don't get me wrong, compared to a lot of those races. Yeah, but, but it's going to cost you over £1,000. Yeah, it's 850 quid to enter. You know, when you paid for your travel, just to get to the start line is probably going to cost you £1,000. And on top of that, you've probably had to buy numerous, you know, quite a bit of kit extra. Yep. Um, so you're probably looking all in at about £2,000. That's not a unsubstantial amount of money. No. Um, it could be that people have spent more than that. So there's a fair amount of commitment that you're signed up to when you stand on that start line. Yeah, when when it comes to the weather, people quite often say, oh, if it's not a bad year, it doesn't count. And there's nothing you can do about it. It is what it will be once you've entered. You know, you come to the event, it is. And a lot of people were before the event saying, oh, it's going to be really mild. We've had a really mild winter. But the weather was starting to turn. You can only beat the course that's put in front of you. Exactly, yeah. And and I've had people saying, oh, it was, there was no snow. And it's like, okay, there was no fluffy white stuff. But as you say, there was a lot of wind. There was a lot of weather fronts coming through. There was quite a lot of rain. Well, we're um, talking later, you were, you were effectively ice skating on parts of yeah, the course. Yeah, and at the end, it was, yeah, it was very icy. So... So there was a different kinds of weather. And I think also in a race like this, where you're going up and down a lot between the hills, it depends where you were on the course at what time determines what kind of your experiences. And some people might have said, oh, it was fine over these parts. I don't think that was no, no challenge at all. But if you were there three hours later, completely different experience. And we'll come on to some of those. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just say, I don't think you should worry that your spine experience is some way... Yeah, that, that you did. Didn't, that the your spine count. race doesn't count. No. For goodness' sake, no. anyone, and anyone who says so is an idiot. And uh, yeah, and I, I'll, I'll go on record and say <laughs> that anyone who says so is an idiot. And I, would, and I really wish I could record exactly what I was seeing and feeling through the race because um, it's quite funny because there's two spine videos that have been done. One of them was last year, and a couple of years before that. And I've watched them many times. And whenever I watch those videos, I see bits in it and go, my God, that weather looks awful. My God, that level looks awful. 
I tell you what, the weather I experienced just on this spine, save not having to post hole through deep snow, was worse than all the weather I saw on those two videos. Well, I, I put a tweet out, so- didn't I, before, <laughs> before you started saying, uh, r- rule one, record lots for the podcast. Rule two, don't die. Rule three, <laughs> don't forget rule one. And you pinged me a note at one point on WhatsApp and just said, you know, I haven't recorded much yet. You're going to kill me. But the weather's, I just can't record anything. The weather is so bad. You've got to remember the camera crews turn up when it's not too bad. Yeah. And that's not to say those years they did the movies weren't bad, but they... But they didn't get. But the that's worst the point. Bits. A lot of the footage this year from the Montaigne on the Montaigne videos they put out each day was was taken from a drone. And yeah. in my head, I I was thinking, yeah, you aren't flying that when the weather's bad. You're not so, flying that up where I was. No. <laughs> yeah. So uh, checkpoint one, I tried to sleep for two hours. I, I knew it was a bit of a futile thing to try and do, but I wanted to have a better strategy than I did in Spine Fusion. I wanted to get. I want. I didn't want to be sleeping on the trail, and I wanted to get more definite sleeps at the checkpoints. And overall, I think you achieved that. I did. I think I got. I think I got a much, much better balance. You know, yeah. You slept. You did. So you tried to sleep there. Didn't sleep much. Got half and then, an hour. Yeah. Someone and then sat on me. And on woke your, me up. On your way to Hawes, you clearly because you hadn't slept very much at the first checkpoint, decided to crimp on a park bench for three and a half hours. That was at checkpoint one point five. Okay. At Malamtan. And then, um, and from that point onwards, then you slept in each checkpoint for. About three to four hours, I think. Um, yeah, the max was four. The minimum was two, one and a half. So it, it yeah. fluctuated. But you slept in checkpoints and then walked yeah. on the trail. And I, we slept. I slept once. Well, you could argue I slept twice on the trail. What well, once was on the grass for ten minutes in a forest, uh, and the other one was near a church. But we'll come on to that. No, but I guess the question here is: while we're talking about it, yeah, was sleeping in the checkpoints the right thing to have done? Yes. Or should you have? Just gone in and out of checkpoints and slept somewhere quieter on a roll mat on the trail somewhere. So I, I think either of those work. But if you're sleeping on the trail, you're definitely sleeping on the trail. Do you know what I mean? You're not just rolling over and... No, no, you've got to get a bag out. You've got to get your bag out. You've got to get the gear and you've got to hunker down properly and do it as a proper sleep. You can't go to that effort just to get 10 minutes. Unlike on the spine where you just fell over into the heather. and yeah, The spine well, fusion could. where you fell yeah. over in the heather and got up again. Exactly. So two thirds were, were, were definitely getting sleep at the A stations because they were tired and they could do it. And that seemed like a more logical place to do it. And that's what I generally did. But there were people who consciously were not sleeping at the aid stations and would go out and very confidently get their bivy bag out, find a little place and sleep there for three hours where it was quieter. And you know what? In the way I'd like to have experimented with that a bit more, the people I spoke to who had done that said they, you know, that was much better for them. They could just get out their roll mat, turn on their stove, make a cup of tea, do it while they're waking up, sorting out their kit. Do you know what I mean? There were people who were quite efficient, that kind of thing. And we'll come on to that when we talk about food as well. But yeah, but I think, I think either all works, but I was definitely at at check, sleeping at checkpoints and that worked fine. Okay. Apart from checkpoint one. Apart from checkpoint one. And we'd said before when we did, when you did Fusion that, you know, that's an incredibly busy station. You've got a lot of people coming mm. through in a short amount of time mm. and it's not the best place to sleep at. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's just not kind of tired enough and it's just too noisy. Beds aren't quite so good. But anyway, it's good to get off your feet and get through that first chaos of a, of a checkpoint of opening up your bag and sorting out all your kit and so your let's, stocking. Let's talk about that. So you, you get into an aid station. What mm. were you doing? So when you're approaching a checkpoint, you know, they're, they're getting your drop bag ready. So there's a bit of a reception team. As soon as you arrive, point you towards your bag, you know, make you aware of where all the food is and, uh, and the logistics of, of that checkpoint. 
and typically what you'll do is you'll take off some of your gear really your your wet dank race gear you want to invariably want to change some socks and stuff like that change probably underpants and things um so there are some logistics otherwise you'd get yeah end up developing other issues maybe have a little bit of a of a wash and then you'd go and and eat uh, after you've eaten then people would i mean i showered once but you have got that option to to shower um uh but then probably go to bed and then get up and then put your stuff back on and i'll head off again so it's basically the patter it goes to and normally you would eat when you arrive but also if you slept quite often you would eat when you wake up as well and get two good meals now they always guarantee you one solid meal but that you know the staff on this race are brilliant and they're just cooking all the time and invariably you can grab a couple of meals and a pudding and stuff like that and as we know as you go through this race you just end up becoming an eating machine anyway so that's the general pattern of and, how it works. And medical assessment at each aid station? Yeah, they, they, they don't force one on you, but invariably you do go see them. I saw them at every one just to get some feet care. So at one of the checkpoints, I had a chat with Adam Collins, an emergency medicine trainee from Edinburgh, and I start by asking him what it's like to support the race. So it's, it's an odd experience for us because the, the medicine is mostly relatively simple we're we're kind of here because something really awful might go wrong and we all want that not to happen but most of our time is taken up kind of taping people's feet and doing really minor stuff that we probably wouldn't even really do at work and it's immensely humbling for us because we're just involved with people who are like pushing themselves to the limit for you know everyone's got a story so everyone that we speak to has a reason they're a reason they're doing this some people it's personal you know I've spoken to runners who just wanted to get fit and lose weight and this is kind of the ultimate culmination of that you know you speak to the like elite runners and, and they obviously have their motivations and they do absolutely incredible things the people you know in the middle or the back of the pack who are, are, are kind of having a much harder time of it almost because it's they've never done anything like this before um, and actually you're, you feel like a sort of core part of getting them across the line um, so it is yeah it's a, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a totally different experience being at work um, and a really nice way to like use our skills yeah. feels, it just feels really kind of good even more so than just normal medicine um, to be helping people who, who've got such drive and such passion and are, are pushing themselves so hard to be a tiny part of getting you guys across the line is just amazing um, we're pretty much on 24-7 for the whole kind of 10 days we are resting when we can I'd say most of us are probably getting about 4 hours sleep a night and some of us are not getting that and sometimes we're, sometimes we're getting 8 hours one night and none the next bit so it's a bit of a mental feat of endurance for us but it's made very trivial by everything around us I've taped more feet and looked after feet in terrible conditions and that is what you have to do you have to also look after people's feet um, and you have to look after cold people you have to look after exhausted people so it's fun in itself I'm enjoying it it's experience it's genuine and it's also CV fodder because you put on that you were the medic on the spine race it's a big deal um, and exiles are exiles are kind of all about that trifecta of fun fun experiences that people want to do for themselves um, learning learning and teaching for people who are new to like wilderness medicine or new to kind of ultra running medicine um, and also getting you as the first step on the ladder up to you know doing more wilderness medicine maybe being the expedition doctor instead of part of a team or something smaller or more so it's definitely a, it's definitely all three yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, you can do it. 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 You can do that was that train. That was dress. That's that dress. That's it. There's no nose. That's what's good. Yeah, so I don't need KC. And the Achilles. Achilles, you need up the back. So yeah. what I probably need to do is kneel on the sofa facing away from me and I'll do the back of the Achilles. Right, could you just say, because Adam told me to ask you the difference between what you do with sport, you know, medicine and how you deal with issues compared yep. to how they typically deal with them here in the UK? Um, Okay, so, I'm going to keep packing while you do that. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a physiotherapist, so part of it is that I know a lot about a little thing in a way. A lot of the doctors have to know a lot about a lot of things, whereas I'm very specialised. And so I know probably a little bit more and a little bit more practice at anatomy. So when I am diagnosing, instead of just uh, focusing on can you walk, is it fractured, is it soft tissue? My idea is figuring out why is it doing this and then trying to assist the athletes using strapping or movement patterns to be able to then compensate safely with that and be able to continue going, hopefully, is my plan. Um, and then as a physiotherapist in general, my job is then to rehab that person back to full health and back to full movement and motion, and motion whereas a doctor's job generally is to diagnose, check that everything's okay and then pass on. And what about this 3D body building up an image of the 3D? Um, I, found, found it, I found it interesting when the, when the guy said that. That's not um, a term that I've used. I guess um, through a series of tests that don't require um, a, any imaging, through our anatomical knowledge and our biomechanical knowledge, we can start to... Uh, actually, yeah, I've never used that term, but it is a good one. I can start to build an image in my head of where the problem is coming from um, by doing different tests, which I know stress different parts more than others. A lot of our testing is uh, diagnosis by elimination. If this doesn't hurt, it's not that problem. So that's why they think I do so many tests, but it's because it's not, oh, this hurts, that must be the issue. It's that doesn't hurt, I can eliminate that. Um, and after a while, we start going, okay, I've eliminated quite a few things and there's only a few things left now. Yeah, yeah. With, you know, subjective and talking to the person first, which helps me eliminate a lot to begin with. You're a supercomputer. You're the modern equivalent of AI. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the, the original human uh, AI. <laughs> the original human AI is here. <laughs> um, anything else? Cool. I'm Hilary Wilson, a chartered physiotherapist. And you spend most of your time with the... Uh, Australian Blues. Yes, so I, I work, my, my day job is working in a clinic in London called Octopus Clinic, but uh, I also work with the British Australian Rules football squads, men's and women, and the New Zealand netball team when they are in the UK. Cool. And a few other bits and pieces. You know what you're talking about. It's I hope a hard so. sport. It is, yeah. Um, both of them are in very different ways. They've both got a lot of demands. Um, but it's great fun. I like having the variety. Um, and then it's great fun to come out here and see a whole other perspective. Yeah, enough running around. Running, loosest sense of the word from where we are. We know Jasmine Paris is at the back here. Oh. It's a soccer fest. No, you are all absolute legends in my mind. Um, yeah, absolute incredible feats of endurance and, yeah. and mental strength. I think that's, that's, that's where it comes in, really. So, you see, talking determination to. God damn you, we're going to Yes, you are going to finish no matter what. My feet were generally much better than they were during spine fusion, but you know, you, you, you do develop hot spots, and it's far easier for them just 
for the sake of a couple of minutes just saying look can you have a look at my feet and they go yeah yeah and they put some kt tape and a little bit of fleecy web on a few bits you know can can stop something small becoming something quite significant absolutely so it's worth i always invest that time you've just done another 40 miles or whatever on you know in harsh weather conditions why wouldn't i spend five ten minutes with someone just redoing stuff also had to have tape on my hips and my shoulders and stuff from various rubs and bits and pieces as well so but yeah so you normally fit that in and that was because your body hadn't developed calluses from your kicks you'd not trained as much in it as you'd like to have done yeah just not done enough miles in it but i I did know that i was going to get some rubbing on hips and stuff okay but it was nothing major um no blistering but just kind of rubs and sores and my shoulders was me getting used to my pack it took me I hadn't done as I hadn't gone far enough in training to actually develop shoulder sores where they're just the weight and what I found was eventually it was around checkpoint two that I worked all this out that I just couldn't transfer the weight onto my hips and my pack and I was having too much on my shoulders and as much as I tied the the waist buckle it wasn't it was still on my shoulders and I just couldn't work out what it was and realized what it was it's the front pouch so everyone normally has a front pouch to put stuff in so yeah for food and stuff and what it was, it was there was a lot of weight in there, and it didn't matter how much you put on your hips. It was pulling. It was pulling down on your front. So I actually transferred a lot of that to the back, and that made it an awful lot better. Right. And I also extended the, the length of the back yep. by one notch. Yep. On the harness. So and, then uh, it sat more on your hips. It sit better, and so and then and then from then I was kind of fine. But it did take me like two days to work out how to weigh my pack properly uh, which go. sounds even after practice but it's only after like 24 hours that you suddenly go god my shoulders hurt no 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 I get that um, so you, you've gone through checkpoint one mm-hmm. and then went off towards um, horse and that's there's some fairly gnarly bits yeah. of walking along there so, aren't there well you go to checkpoint 1.5 because it's quite a long Malham. stretch of Malham time because yeah. Checkpoint one's at 45 miles and checkpoint two thinks at 108. So you've got quite oh, yeah. a long That's way right, to yeah. cover. So, so you've got Malham Tarn at 1.5 in the middle. And from uh, Hebden Bridge to, so checkpoint one to 1.5 is, is fairly okay. It's fairly low level-ish. Um, you go through um, Malham Cove. That was really slippy at the top on the limestone pavement. So we did the, the back route around there. Um, if you're if you're ever doing the race, you just need to be careful. The top is people get lost up there for an hour. Right. Um, it's only like a you know a 500 yard section, but it can be uh, tricky. Um, so anyway, did that got to got to um, uh, Malantan. I was with a couple of people at that time. Matt, race number one one eight. I bet there weren't enough jokes about that. There was lots. <laughs> and John, and we said, all right, okay, we'll head out together. And now you're not allowed to sleep at Malantan, but there are places there's like bivy areas and stuff unfortunately we kind of got separated uh, I won't go it's too much to go into the reasons why but essentially I, I slept on a, on a on a bench at the front of this um, of, of the activity centre there got really good sleep for three and a half hours but I woke up naturally I thought someone was going to wake me up and it didn't happen um, but I did feel very rested after the three and a half hours so I got my kit on and then was kind of by myself and I thought right I'll try and catch up with these two guys and just motored it and I was feeling really confident and I knew it was wind it the wind had then picked up again and it was looked like it was going to be raining and stuff so I thought right this is going to be quite intense and from there to Hawes is quite challenging you go over something called Fountains Fell you then go over Penny Ghent and then you do the Cam Road kind of section it's not really a road there's bars of it which is a road but you go over this 15 mile kind of section which is a bit difficult not difficult dull 
um, changing before you get into whores. So it, it's quite an intense section. And I knew as I was approaching the foothills of uh, Fountains Fell that it was going to get really rough, but I felt rested. Um, so going over Fountains Fell was an experience. As I was going up, the visibility was really closing in. I could genuinely see with my head torch uh, as I ascended, um, it went down to about two paces in front of me. I could see just because the clag blowing through at high speed, it was at least 40 mile an hour wind, so accentuated in certain parts and felt much windier than that, but constant um, high wind. Um, because everyone had been told, look, there's a number of people who've got um, wind blindness, please wear your goggles, etc. Um, yeah, I've got Oakley transition lens glasses, which wrap around my eyes quite well, but they were getting really wet and clagging up. Uh, and I was, I couldn't wear those and my goggles because there was too many layers which were misting or had water on. So I took my, had my glasses off and just my goggles on. But even then, there were still constant rain. And, you know, it wasn't like full-on rain, but it's that whole misty, rainy thing. It was just really difficult to see. So I was literally head down. I had my GPS zoomed in as far as I possibly could to follow the, the track as accurate as I could. And I could literally see two paces. I was literally falling into things and replaying in my mind. So all this is at night, um, replaying in my head, right, I, I can roughly remember where I am on the trail. And that was really hard um, on my own, quite serious level of commitments. And what I described on the chat channel as extreme yeah. <laughs> in, in capital letters. I've done a reasonable, I'm not going to call myself a mountaineer, but I've done a reason, you know, I've been to the Dolomites, I've been to the Alps, I've done some mountaineering. I know, you know, I've pushed myself a little bit in, you know, my, in my past. Um, and this was very challenging. I got to the top, made one recording on my iPhone, but that's the only place which was next to the wall that I was happy to take a glove off to get my phone out Well, to we, record anything. We joked, haven't we, before when I, when you said, I said to you, oh, you've got to tie your t- gloves on with bits of string and put them through your shoulders. Uh, do you know what? I'll, I'll take it all back. That's what you should have done. I know. <laughs> I know. And I had mocked something up, but I didn't, I, uh, I, I didn't have it worked out. And it's interesting because I was with a guy called Paul who wore buffalo gear um, just after this section. Along Cram Road, and he's got two pairs of buffalo gloves, and he has got ties on from one of his gloves to his to his wrists. And he says, as he says himself, if I lose a buffalo glove, my race is over. Yeah, and I completely agreed. So I really should have. I, I didn't have the idea he had about how to keep his gloves on. But anyway, serious. So look, I think now would be a good time to listen to part of an interview you did with a guy called Patrick that you ran the second half of the race with. Correct. Yeah, I mean, the parts you mentioned were the most difficult bits. Over Fountains, Fell and Penny Gent, those were the most difficult bits, I think. You know, mm. there were bits that on the first day when we were, you know, on, on the Kinder Plateau where it was a little difficult because of the wind and the rain and whatever, but at least it was daylight. Um, yeah. And but, but I think that little section that you're talking about there, Fountains, Fell and Penny Gent, that, that was by far the most difficult. Yeah. I was, I was just glad my mum wasn't watching while I was doing it. Cause I came well, down and I texted yeah. my God, that was extreme. Um, I, was, I was very pleased my wife was not aware of what the conditions were up there because she would have been very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I made one I mean, recording up there by a wall, but it, it, it doesn't, doesn't do it any justice whatsoever. You know, but as I reflected afterwards, you know, it's the spine race, that's what you signed up for. So, you know, yeah. If, you, yeah. if you're in, you're in. Um, so, so and then you got, and then you had to do Penny Ghent. Yeah, so coming down off of Fountains Fell was really tricky. The the, the path is notoriously slippy, and, and whilst my shoes I think were generally really good compared to the summer ones, I know they're in a bit of a state. 
they're not very good on British mud. And so I was going arse over tit quite a lot on slippy, wet British mud. Well, um, and, you know, it clearly was bad. And there were people who bypassed Penny again. And, you, of course, you're all tracked. It was really obvious, those people that were. And we couldn't tell. There were a lot of them doing it. And our thought was, well, if everyone's got the routes... Mm. And therefore, they know where they're supposed to go and everybody's not doing it. Perhaps they've told people not to do it. Yeah. So in my head, I was always doing Penny Ghent. I had assumed, I always know that if they've closed the route, they will tell you that they've closed the route for safety. They'll yeah. reach out to you. So I never asked at checkpoint 1.5 whether it's open or closed. I had heard previously that it had been closed for some of the But they hadn't races. told you it was and therefore you went yeah, ahead. Yeah, so I thought, right, I'm going to do it. Um Having got off Fountains Fell, you go on a small road section, then you're straight into Penny Ghent. And I thought, well, I mean, you know, having seen what Fountains Fell was like, I'd be surprised if Penny Ghent's open, but I'll assume it is unless I'm told otherwise. Now, on the way up to Penny Ghent, I passed a safety team on the way down who'd been up to check Penny Ghent and said, are you right, mate? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I said, what's Penny Ghent like? And said, it's fine. There's no wind. The, 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 the high wind isn't going straight across the rock face. Right. So you're safe. So basically, there's a bit of a rock climb scramble. Yeah. And it was on a lot of the videos. Yeah, and if you fall off there, you are going to hurt yourself. Yeah. I'm not sure you're going to die, but you're going to be airlifted off. So it's kind of four-point climbing for, for uh, you know, kind of 15, 20 metres. So, um, so anyway, um, they said, yes, fine, mate. So I just cracked on. So I was by myself, and I did exactly that. It was hard going. It's difficult when you know you've got to scramble up and you can only see a few feet to think, am I climbing the right bit? Yeah. Am I going to run out of rock? And, and then have to climb go, back down again. And then climb back down or what? Um, but actually it was it, it was fine now when I got up to the top and went over the top of Penny Ghent yeah it was huge wind but you're, you're safe you're just coming down in hot, very high force wind Yeah. but I was essentially on my own in that section however there was a lot of complications so this ended up becoming a bit of a point around Penny Ghent because there were 20 people who didn't do Penny Ghent who were around me in the race Yeah. but there was a multitude of reasons so they were all given a penalty of an hour Um. But I know that a number of them asked Checkpoint 1.5 whether it was open or closed, and they were told it was closed by the staff. Now, right. Whether the staff should have said that or not, I don't know. Now, it had been closed, but it was open, so, right. so the message hadn't got through to them. So they were given misinformation, so they just, as soon as they got to Penny Ghent, where's the left-right turn? They, did, even they went along was, the little path. Yeah, even though there was no sign, and there should have been, or they could have phoned race control and they didn't, they just said, right, I've been told it's closed, it's closed, which is understandable. Yes. So they went straight to the checkpoint. Other people went over um, uh, Fountains Fell and thought it was so extreme that they just ruled it out in their head and said, well, normally they close Penny Ghent. They don't close Fountains Fell. So if Fountains Fell was that bad, Penny Ghent must be worse by definition. Right. That's the one they normally close. Yeah. So I'm not doing it. So for safety reasons, completely valid, you know, in personal, you've got to make decisions sometimes. They said they weren't going to do it. Now, I don't know why any of them didn't phone race control. Maybe they did. But either which way, for various reasons, 20 people didn't do Penny Ghent. And I think of where I was in the field, I was one of only a few that actually did. And there's going to be a question. And I'm, as you say, I'm, I wasn't there. I'm certainly not going to criticise them. And, you know, the weather was extreme and the people have got to take personal responsibility for their own safety so that you don't endanger the safety crew. So that's yes. a good thing that they do. That, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And if they think I can't do it, then absolutely, they made absolutely the right decision. Correct. But you, but there is a little bit that says, maybe because I, we were watching the dots, did they save more than an hour by not going over the top? Yeah, I've not done the analysis. No, I, I, I suspect it was probably time neutral-ish. Yeah. So 
so my point, I guess, is if you cut the course, normally you get penalised. Those people didn't really get penalised for cutting the course. It, it was just neutralised out. And yeah. as I said, probably, probably, given the weather conditions and what the spine's about, that's probably fair. Yeah. But I can understand that some people look at it and go, those people benefited from not doing it and, and therefore should have been penalised more. I'm not sure I'd agree because, as as I've said, I'd rather, I think it's much more of a sensible grown-up and mature decision and a sensible race decision by experienced racers to go I don't think I can do it so I shouldn't do it yeah and and, and to save the the crews having to go out and rescue them which yeah. would be wrong I think there, there was a lot of I'm very conscious that people will be listening to this who who were affected by it and emotions are very high and probably still are um, there's a lot of depending on what happened so you could say for example that people who were told that it was closed have received something that was labelled a penalty but they were told not to do it yes by staff so they feel quite rightly um, um, wronged that they've got a penalty against them and they wish they hadn't been told that and had done it because then they've done the course yeah Um, whereas a much nicer way of calling it would just be well it's a time offset because you saved you saved time of not doing it we're going to take an hour off you to to offset that time and everything but it's not a penalty yeah. It's just an offset against those people that exactly. didn't do it to keep the race structure and, and order the fair. And if people had decided not to do it for whatever reason, then then it wasn't actually a penalty at all. It's just an offset. Yeah. So it's almost like penalty was the wrong word yeah. and offended people in the same way. Now, I know they might have just grouped it all together and called it one thing, which is a standard name they give it. Yeah. But nonetheless, you can imagine this was a talking point for a number of days. I can imagine. However, <laughs> as we only have an hour for the podcast, we'll leave it there. But I'm just glad I did it. And I, yeah. I wasn't emotionally tied. No, because I can imagine consequences. just to round this out, that even if you were told not to do it, you've got to the end of the spine and there's a little bit of you that says, I didn't do it all. I can imagine that must be difficult for some people, especially when now they know it was open yeah. and they could have done it and they yeah. didn't do it because they thought they were doing the right thing by doing what they were told. And there's annoying people like me going, oh, it wasn't so bad. Exactly. And that's yeah. the benefit of hindsight. I thought it was going to be worse, but actually yeah. it's very... Wind direction on specific hills at certain times has a massive thing I don't think the organisers realised Fountains Fell was as bad as it was no but then Penny again was bad but it wasn't as, it, normally you'd expect them the other way round but it yeah. wasn't it was foot commerce anyway so so you got to checkpoint 2 108 miles which of course is the end of the challenger the shorter race yes yeah yeah um, how are you feeling I was feeling alright actually I wasn't feeling too bad oh yeah, yeah. there's this process you go through um, and, I've, I, and I'm familiar with it now because I experienced it in Spine Fusion where you lower yourself into the hurt locker. And uh, and this is the way I kind of um, imagine it. Um, it's almost like you, there's a little mini me and you get lowered down on a kind of on a, on a pulley into this little room underground um, over the course of two days. And once you're down there, that's when you're, you're tired, you're exhausted parts of your body hurt you know your standard energy gels and food you just don't want you know you're just in a just in a sore horrible place yeah and, and you know you're going to get there and it's like well you know you've discussed it before like welcoming the the, the monsters isn't exactly it? yeah yeah exactly yeah and, and those things have all happened to you yeah i know we're not running running or you know i wasn't and a lot of people around me weren't but but you've 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 arrived in this place and now it's a case of right grinding it out and from then on, you just kind of almost like, right, I'm in my little room. Right, what what levers, what have I got at my disposal? What tools to make it better? Now, 
having been in that room before for spine fusion is like right okay i need proper food right pull that lever i need lots of this right get your feet done right do this right you know so, so you start to get into that zone yep as it were so stay at the aid station cracked on did um the next one which was actually another high peak which i did by myself quite a lot of the main peaks but the interesting bit own. so having slept at malham you then didn't sleep at halls i don't think uh, and you went straight out and managed to push all the way through to the next day station. Yeah, and I then went to uh, checkpoint three. Three before you then slept again. Yes. Um, and there was a question about whether you would do that. And there was again on the WhatsApp group. And and I think I remember saying to you, "There's a choice here." Yes. And you clearly felt that you could do it. Yes. And, and pushed on it and did it in about the time that we thought you would and got yeah. there when we thought you would. Yeah. So I was quite. I I, I did. Um, uh, what was it? Um, Great Chanafel by myself it was getting quite cold and windy by the time I got to the top of there and it was night basically basically in this race it's all done at night yeah <laughs> well I think that, that, that's the interesting thing isn't it depending what depending what timings you're running between aid stations you'll either be arriving at night and going to bed and getting up in the morning and running the day or you'll be arriving in daylight you, you were arriving at six o'clock in the morning most days and then going to bed and then getting up at, and, the, and the, or yeah you know, at some time during the day and then going out again in the dark well there's the 60 you know mathematically the 16 hours of darkness when you do the race and eight, eight hours of light a day yeah and for me and a lot of people who are doing that kind of six six and a half day schedule yeah you're arriving in daylight which means you're losing four hours normally say two and a half hours sleep and an hour and a half messing around of those eight hours yeah yeah so no, exactly it was so invariably it felt like the whole race was at night so yeah so did great Chanfell, did that horrible bit between weight and kells which if you've done is just horrendous there's landslides all over the place and you just snap one of my poles um and then ground it out to tan hill in uh, which is nice to get to but it was really windy horrible wet bleak miserable british winter weather was there food available at there Tampere? was there was a soup Fortunately, I got in. I had to go straight. Out. I went straight into the main pub, and they went, "Oh, hello, Here you are. Have a pint." And it's like, no, no, no. Actually, races round the back, and there was a. I was able to get a soup. I think I was one of the last people uh, there. I was just before like eleven o'clock. You're not allowed to sleep there. Some people wanted to, and even though there's a massive room where you could have slept, the rules don't allow you to sleep at that eight at that checkpoint. It's not a full checkpoint. So some people did, but they were forced outside the door. I had to sleep on the gravel outside in the car park in the wet and the wind and the horribleness. <laughs> it's like, and the people in the pub are like, you can't do that. That's not, it's like, no, we have to. And they were literally just <laughs> sat on the grass sleeping. Um, so anyway, so I, 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 up to this point, I'd done most of the race on my own. I'd linked it with a couple of people. I linked it with a chap called Paul over Cam Road and a couple of guys called John um, and Matt um, a bit on the second day. But effectively I've been mostly on my own now I linked in with a few people and we did the section there which goes across uh, the kind of moors to the A66 which is the halfway point and then across the moors afterwards there with a few people it all got a really confusing a bit jumbled uh, I ended up basically with a group of four people including a guy called Patrick and Colm and I was getting really tired before checkpoint three and I, I basically said to these guys look I'm I need to sleep, I need to sleep. I said, oh, don't sleep here. I was like, no, I need to, I'm just going to crash right literally next to this wall and get my bag out. I'm just going to sleep for an hour. But as it happened, I just managed to persevere enough. And then they started to have some navigation challenges. And I'd had a good memory from the summer that actually I started to perk up. I had music in one ear blasting away. And actually I was then with Patrick at the front, basically trying to say, no, 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 it's not down here, it's down here. And that 
reignited my brain, as it were. Yeah, and it's also really uh, interesting, and I think a little bit inspiring to hear about the additional physical challenge, I guess, Patrick had on top of everything else that goes along with running the spine race. Absolutely. I did a lot of preparation, and I think it stood me in very good stead. You know, for example, I did get the opportunity to recce almost all of the route, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have a big running year last year anyway, so my base fitness was very good. Uh, you know, with things like the Grand Union Canal Race and a couple of marathons and way like coast to coast and a, and a bunch of other things. I, I mean, I think it tells I clocked up about 5,000 kilometers of running miles last year. So my, my base fitness wow. was very, very good. Um, and having wrecked the route, I knew it well. And, and I did a lot to control those things that were in my control. So on kit, for example, I didn't make any compromises on things like staying warm or good footwear or things like that. I, I didn't seek to say 100 grams here and there and everywhere. I, I just went for kit that I knew would stand the test. I targeted the kit early in the year and picked it up as it came with reasonably good prices through the year. Yes. Um, but I didn't, I didn't go for top of the range lightweight gear. And, you know, and I accepted that that meant that my pack was going to be heavier. I was relaxed about that. I, you know, I didn't feel like I was racing for a position. I felt like I was doing the challenge to, to successfully complete it, and heavier pack didn't put me off feeling that I could achieve that. So in preparation, I, I felt I did a lot of preparation, uh, including thinking about the race and race strategy and having some objectives for it. I, yeah. I thought I was very well prepared. I, I spent a lot of time doing the preparation for this, and I spent a lot of time, kind of, uh, spent time in the Brecon Beacons on my own, deliberately at night in bad weather to try and make yeah. sure I was happy with the kit. And I was mentally, you know, mentally done some preparation of things I'd experienced in the race. And I hadn't done much running, running training. I had done some, obviously. But I didn't think that was the major thing. But I approached it in a similar way. If, if I'm not trying to race to get a position, I'm trying to finish. And, uh, you know, I, I've got reasonable kit, but I wasn't, I wasn't cutting down on kit. To, to save grams in order to kind of think that I was suddenly going to race it. It was like, no, yeah. I have to. I'm, I'm, I'm taking all the equipment I need to make sure I'm safe, number one, and B, I'm going to get to the finish no matter what. And carrying an extra kilogram at the end of the day isn't really going to be the reason why I don't finish this. Um, yeah. but, but not carrying that kilogram of equipment might be. One of the reasons I was quite nervous about entering was not the physical fitness thing at all. It was more because I've got such terrible eyesight I was actually worried that my eyesight would be a huge factor that would stop me doing it. But, you know, I managed to get comfortable with that and and enter. Is it okay to explain to kind of listeners your eyesight and what, what yeah. you... Well, I, I was sort of um, born blind in my left eye and I've got keyhole vision in my right eye as well. So peripheral vision around, you know, on the right-hand side of my right eye is not very good. So my, my vision is very focused in towards my nose, a bit like a like looking through a microscope almost so things like wearing goggles at night time is actually very difficult or wearing goggles at all actually is very difficult and one of the big decisions i had before the race on goggles was whether to have prescription goggles which for my sort of eyesight problem would be extremely expensive or goggles to go over the top of my glasses and i opted for the latter because it was just significantly cheaper i was actually able then with patrick to kind of pull this team through to checkpoint three and I'm really glad it did because I could get a really good sleep at checkpoint three rather than an hour and a half I was surprised I expected that you were going to crash somewhere on route because you'd not stopped at checkpoint two and of course you talk about walking at night 
the interesting bit for those of us who are supporting you, of course, we're awake in the daytime. Yeah, yeah. And so we'd in the daytime you'd be asleep and we'd just be chatting about what we thought you'd be up to and, and, and stuff. Yeah. And then you'd start walking and we all go to bed. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah. And then wake up in the morning to see where you'd gone. It was quite nice. But it was quite, there were a lot of people you saw, people waking up in the middle of the night and checking where you were and yeah, then yeah. leaving a little message at three in the morning and then going back to sleep again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and people quite, going, oh wow, I woke up and you've gone all that way. That's right, yeah. yeah. In and the last yeah. eight hours. So, you get to checkpoint three. You'd started on Sunday at eight o'clock in the morning. It's now Wednesday morning at about eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Give or take. So you've been going for three days. Yeah. You're over halfway. It's about 140 miles. And you've been through some fairly gnarly weather. Yeah. It, if not, nothing else, and people have said people can talk about the weather, but when you can only see two metres and you're on your own in the middle of a moor, it's quite terrifying. You know, the, I think the first day was pretty bad, personally. I think that was pretty bad weather going over Kinder. I mean, I thought that was pretty grim. And I thought the bit... I guess it was on the Monday, certainly going over Fountains Fell and Penny Ghent was that was grim, that was. That was cold, driving rain, it was it was awful, awful. So that's Colin that you ran quite a lot of the second half of the race with. And I think his thoughts and insights on how you need to plan your strategies for a race like the Spine are really interesting and insightful. It's all about conserving yourself and just, you know, looking after yourself and just making sure that you can you know you can keep moving and when things get difficult and you're you know you're sleep deprived you can still function and you can still make decisions that you'll be okay you know I, you'll be okay it's not so much that you're gonna be two hours slower but that actually you don't get hypothermia or you don't you know you don't snap an ankle or something like that you know you'll be actually yes. okay and it's, it's less of a race and it's more of a it's more of an expedition style journey looking after yourself through the wild basically northern england you know that's kind of how i viewed it really that's how i still view it actually you know now as well yeah i, I kind of base my approach largely on what pavel Polonce said in interviews um because he says look it's not a running race it's a elimination expedition you've got yeah, to make right. sure that all the things that could go wrong don't go wrong yeah. for you so yes. i wrote down a, a risk register of all the things that kind of could go wrong yeah, yeah, I thought, well, yeah. how, do, how do i minimize them you know looking back you've got to be physically fit to do it but that's only one part of it isn't it you know mm. and the other stuff as well that goes with that i think that gets you to the finish really so How's your kit at that point, and how's your mental state at that point? Yeah, so apart from being knackered. Yeah, yeah. So my kit had been really good. So for me, the buffalo gear I'd had was fantastic. I had not been cold, and you were ju- literally wet. just wearing the buffalo mountain shirt, nothing underneath it. Yeah, so I was wearing basically, apart from shoes, waterproof socks, and in gingy socks, yeah, um, and underpants. The only other clothing I had on was the buffalo gear. So I had buffalo special six pants. I had the special six top. And then I had the gloves and, and the associated hood. Yep. Now. So um, that buffalo six, special six man shirt is next to your skin. And there's nothing else on top of it apart from one presumes a waterproof when it was. Raining. So, yeah. So the buffalo gear is rated to 50 miles an hour. And on a number of occasions, the wind was getting more than that. And I wore nothing on top of the buffalo gear up until when I got to Fountains Fell and Penny Ghent and then I put on the Cam Leica Om gear which yep. is like a wind layer over the top not to keep the water off necessarily but just to keep top the and wind, bottoms top and bottoms just right. to keep the wind off in fact I didn't on the bottoms so I just had the top on right so that was it I had no layer underneath so basically if, if I unzip the shirt bare skin yeah you know unzip the side pants which go all the way down the sides of the legs yeah. bare skin so I was doing what they do with buffalo gear I was just opening and closing zips on the leeward and windward sides to vent right 
basically. And I was I was fine. You know, I feel the cold, and I wasn't cold. Uh, and it was just because putting hood up, putting hood down. Yeah, I had a couple of buffaloes around my neck and stuff, but that buffs. was the same. buffs. So I had a buffaloes. Of... Have a couple of buffaloes around your That'd be a lot of extra weight to carry. That would. So, so, but that was essentially it, and it was working really well. And what was really nice is as a checkpoint, so I could take the buffalo gear off, even though it was wet, shove it on the floor. Don't need to dry it out. Don't need to do anything. Put on another top while I go and eat some food. Put on the wet gear. Absolutely fine. You know, it's not cold. Yeah, and just move around. So it was for me. It was perfect. There was about ten people wearing it, and all of us were like, "Why would you wear anything else on a on a British horrible race like this?" Okay. Yeah. You know, other systems work. I don't know, but yeah. that was it. Was really easy, if you know what I mean. Yep. If I was Jasmine Paris running at the front, no, no, I wouldn't probably wouldn't have had that gear. Yeah. But, but that's not the race I was having, and it's not no. the race which most people have. No. So that's the gear. Great. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling mentally? Mentally, definitely starting at this point to feel committed. Definitely feeling like I'm not sure I want to come back and do this race again. And therefore, I do not want to leave this unfinished. Because if I do not finish this race, I'll have a debt to come back and finish it. So definitely feeling like having got to the bottom of the Hurt Locker and living in it. Let, that, me, show, let me show you a picture. What do those eyes say? Uh, tired, determined. I don't know. What do you think they say? I think there's that, that, that dead look that you see when they put mug shots on the TV of someone who's committed a really bad crime, you know, of just almost a total lack of emotion. It's just like you've been drained of everything. That's what yeah. it looks like to me. I definitely didn't want to. I, and, and I think when you're over halfway as well, you're like, right, I've broken the back of this. I've invested a lot. Let's see this through. So in preparation, I, I felt I did a lot of preparation uh, including thinking about the race and race strategy and having some objectives for it. I, yeah. I thought I was very well prepared. You had some, um, in your race strategy, your kind of list of objectives, you had like, was it five things? I know a couple of them. If you, have you got that list? Well, I, I, what I was keen to do with objectives, well, we could talk about strategy as well, but on, mm-hmm. on objectives, I was very keen to not have something that was just sort of a single success fail metric, you know, as in finish the race. I didn't want that to be a standalone objective because that would be just too easy to fail. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I started off with something that sort of talks about enjoying the experience and having some fun. Then I went into something that was a little bit more about just being a bit steely. So I said to myself on, on objective two was about staying focused and being confident. Uh, you know, so not to try and question myself uh, and not to get distracted, but just to keep my mind on the task. The third one was to, and, th- and I put this one because I thought the most important attribute in this race was about being resilient. So on, on objective three, I said to myself that I should show resilience and fortitude and, I mean, it's going to sound a little corny, but embrace the hurt locker was, mm. was part of that one about showing fortitude. I mean, you know, I've done lots of long stuff before and you just know it's going to hurt for long periods at certain times and you just know you're going to get past it providing you can just see your way to get through it. So it was a reminder that the hurt locker will come and that you just need to go along with it and be with it for a while. And I think that served me well when the ankle problem came on. And then the last bit was about just taking it one stage at a time. But the biggest bit was the end bit, which was be there at the end. And the be there at the end was the thing that it was all building up to be, which was to get to the finish line. And how are the people around you? You know, you, you, 
because you must look at other people and think well that's how I must look because you know you can't see you yeah yeah and we were aware of quite a few people who pulled out at this stage and people I'd known who pulled out yeah out. Stuart who we, you met yeah. on Cotswold um, Way Century who's done Western States he did Moab 240 yeah um, and he pulled out at about 100 miles unfortunately I'm not quite sure why because he, he was looking really strong he motored past us you know yeah so, so we knew there was a, a reasonable attrition rate on the course uh, and we knew while we were approaching the third checkpoint, Middleton and Teasdale, from back in Hawes, that there were a number of people who had pulled, so who were a long way ahead of us, but decided to call it a day. Yeah, and I think overall, at the end of the race, it was about 55% completed, 45 pulled out. Uh, I think it's 57, something like that. 57% completed, 43 pulled out, yeah. I mean, so yeah, yeah. that's a fairly gnarly attrition rate. Yeah, especially when people have effectively, as we say, paid you know probably the best part of two grand to be at the start line and yeah. submitted a CV and... Are fairly committed to doing it. There's yeah. a lot of people who fully expected to get to the end who didn't. Absolutely. And a number of us were all spurred on by the fact that it was on the main news, you know, Jasmine Paris and the rest of it, and uh, lots of people suddenly paying interest in the race they were doing. So I think we were all like, oh wow, you know, all of a sudden all these people are like, are you doing that race which I've just seen on the news? And it's like, oh, blimey, I better finish this. So that, that might have increased it. But, you know, I know the year before the the finish rate was below 50% because they had a massive dump of snow near the end and people really struggled but anyway yeah I found because of the Jasmine Paris success that more and more people at work so we're doing it for British Heart Foundation which is the work charity and people just latched onto it more and more and then people were like oh hang on a minute it's in the news now you know it wasn't saying doing that kind of thing so and I've been speaking to people this week and, and um, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, we were looking and my, my daughter got well into it. And she was watching you as well and stuff. And it's just all this whole ecosystem of people who were just not watching all week. Well, there must be thousands of people in the end who were kind of yeah, obsessed one, with one where final, we were. One final anecdote on that was that um, my wife, at one bit, I think, on the race, she'd got so much into it. She'd been watching Jasmine Paris the whole way. And then on, after Jasmine had finished, she said, well, I could start watching you now. <laughs> <laughs> so she was, so she was, she was the centre of, of my life's interest. In <laughs> so it's lovely to know, isn't it, that you're in the middle of a 268-mile seven-day race, and your wife's not paying any attention to you at all. <laughs> She's just looking at somebody else. I'm, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure Patrick's wife was was really was watching him a little bit. I'm sure. I hope so. I hope so. Hey, look, that feels like a really good place to end this episode uh, with you halfway through it and uh, about to leave checkpoint three. So don't forget you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Runners on Trail. And you can email us, runnersontrail at gmail.com. So join us in the next episode when we'll follow fame from checkpoint three to the end of the race. There is still a long way to go. Runners on Trail.